the massive difference and, and where a woman really comes into being is when she can look at herself in the mirror and say to herself, I am an able and competent navigator of this mind, of this being in this self, and you are in good hands. I've got you. I've got you. And that's what I didn't have when I was 25, but who does? I've been fighting with one arm tied behind my back. But what happens when I'm finally set free? What we do in life echoes in eternity. It's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. The hard is what makes it great. Only love can truly save the world. This is my mission now, forever. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today, I sat down with Elizabeth Gilbert, New York Times bestseller over and over again. She is most well-known for her book, Eat, Pray, Love, which was published in 2006. It is a memoir which chronicled her journey through the world looking for solace after a very difficult divorce. 12 million copies worldwide in over 30 different languages. The book became so popular. It was turned into a movie starring Julia Roberts and Time Magazine named Elizabeth as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Prior to that fame, little known fact, uh, one of her essays that she wrote for an article she wrote for GQ about her experiences bartending in the Lower East Side eventually became the basis for the movie Coyote Ugly. Now, her most recent novel, City of Girls, is a sexy, raunchy, very open book uh, tale of New York City in the theater world during the 1930s and 40s. And we had a really great discussion about the book and how this translates into modern life. So we talked about virginity and the loss of innocence. We talked about young women who knowingly use their looks as currency. And in her words, as you'll see, she said something to the effect that, you know, you see those those women move to New York City in 1930, in 1960, in 1980, and that woman moved to New York City yesterday. We get into a discussion about Me Too, the Me Too movement and consent and what that means in terms of finally unleashing female rage that has been pervasive throughout human history. And we contrast that with the idea of female desire. So we talk a little, the difference between consent, which is simply saying yes, which of course is one of the most important pieces of a sexual endeavor or sexual encounter. But then we also get into the idea of desire, which is a primal, dark, biological, dark, deep, strong force that even many women don't really know what to do with. And we talked about how to tap into that and what it means to be a woman. So she spoke so eloquently about what it means to be a woman, uh, what it means to feel, and what it means to tap into that female desire. We also talked about family, chosen family and community, and what that means. We talked about loss. We talked about some of the events that she has so famously and so courageously shared through social media channels and otherwise around leaving her husband for her partner, Rhea, who was diagnosed with terminal cancer in 2016 and eventually passed. We talked about giving herself permission to feel grief and how we contrast grief with depression and some of the strategies that she used to get over such a catastrophic loss in her life and how she feels about it today. In my opinion, listening to Elizabeth uh, during this conversation, I found myself getting lost in her descriptions of things. And truthfully, as a podcaster, I was trying to stay focused. She is so gifted, obviously gifted in the written word, but she is also so gifted in the spoken word. Her descriptions are colorful, they're magnetic, they're enticing. And I found myself lost in her descriptions. So I, I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope that you do too. So without further ado, please enjoy my discussion with Elizabeth Gilbert. All right. We are live with the one, the only Elizabeth Gilbert. Liz, welcome to the Better Podcast. Hi, how are you doing? So good. So good to have you here today. So we, uh, <laughs> I, want, I wanted to dive into uh, your book, City of Girls. I don't read a lot of uh, fiction, but when uh, you put out a book, I make sure that it's on my Amazon and it's Aww. here when, and it's here when uh, when it's released. And uh, first, I just want to say 
probably one of the favorite, like my favorite fiction books I've ever, ever read. Thanks, honey. When I was finished the book, I mean, it was so hot and raunchy and there's all this amazing stuff that we're going to dive into, but my brain always goes to frameworks. My brain is always like, okay, how did she weave this quilt together? Um, so my, mm. my first question for opening, uh, opening our conversation is, you know, when you were thinking about this book, and of course, I know there's a lot of things in your life that were going on at the time. Was it the characters that came to you first? Was it the story? Was it, you know, working from the end result, which was, you know, answering this question from Angela, you know, who were you to my father? You know, uh, how did you put this beautiful quilt of a story together? First of all, thank you for that lovely review. <laughs> I'm so I'm so happy that it delighted you. Um, that's what I wanted it to do for people. I wanted it to transport them and delight them. And I'm very happy to hear that my work here is done. So thank you. Um, but to answer your question, so the novel is set in the New York City theater world of the 1940s. Um, and it's about a young woman who gets kicked out of Vassar, a young woman of extreme privilege who gets kicked out of Vassar because she's just a fuck up, basically, you know, her parents don't know what else to do with her. So they send her to live with her aunt Peg, who owns a theater company in New York City. And she falls in with a group of showgirls and playboys and dancers and actors and goes on a promiscuity bender. And the book is written when she's in her 90s, looking back at that period of her life and answering a question that she's received in a letter from a young woman saying, what were you to my father? The inception of the book has been with me for certainly more than 10 years. But but for a very great while, I have wanted to write a novel about female promiscuity. And that's where it all began, is that I wanted to write a novel about girls behaving very badly, um, girls using their beauty very recklessly, and girls engaging in recreational, dangerous, on-the-edge sex, and not having their lives destroyed by it. Because there's a trope in certainly in Western literature of the ruined woman. It's a very great storyline. A lot of great operas have been written about it. Some of the books that I love the most in the entire world: Portrait of a Lady, Anna Karenina, Hedda Gabler, Emma Bovary. You know the the list of of women who made one wrong move sexually and had their lives absolutely destroyed, at least right. kicked out of good society, if not murdered or dead under the wheels of the train, or, or just ruined, absolutely ruined. And I wanted to write a counter to that book. Um, as a female reader, as much as I love the writing in those stories, most of which were written by men, I also felt like, I want to tell a very different story. I want to tell the story of the real story, which is that here's what it comes down to. If women's lives were automatically ruined by our poor judgment when it comes to sex and love, there would not be a woman left alive in this world. Right. And I yes. want to tell this story, right? We can survive our own mistakes and we can survive our own consequences. And I didn't want to write a fake, cheery, sex positive book that said that there are no consequences to living this way because there are. But I wanted to say, you can actually not only survive the things, the terrible mistakes and errors and misjudgments that you make when you're young and very highly sexualized, you may actually look back at that later in your life and be like, that was the thing that formed me, that, that, that forged me into the person who I am today. So far from being the story of a ruined woman, this is the story of a woman creating herself, even through her own errors of, of sexual and romantic misjudgment. I love uh, I love all of that. And one of the things that I felt as I was reading the book was that these women had this natural curiosity. And despite the time, you know, it's it's set in the 1940s where the where we first uh, meet the characters, or maybe late 30s. But they had this in like this insane curiosity about it. But they also gave themselves the permission to explore it and figure out the things that they liked sexually, and then kind of going after that it was almost like predatory in a way. It was almost like, you know what? I'm just going to go after this. Thank you for using that word. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and I, thank I'm, you for using that word. You're welcome. Yeah. It, that's what it felt like to me. And there was a scene. Oh my gosh. I was, I was literally laughing. I was giggling to myself in a coffee shop. I felt ridiculous, but it was the, the showgirls were discussing what they thought staying a virgin meant. And it was hilarious to me because it's literally the opposite of everything I've ever heard. It's like, you know, men want, they want the virgin, they want the, 
you know, that's what they prefer. And these girls were categorically, you know, striking everything down. And I love that because to your point, when you talk about, you know, I've grew up watching these after school specials where the girl makes one mistake, she gets pregnant and now she can't ever, you know, graduate from high school or her life is over. And these girls had the complete opposite opinion around that. And I just, wanted to thank you for that because I was like, oh my God, that's so true. Like it, when you know yourself better and you know what you like in bed, you're actually better in bed. You're not just like a limp, you know, <laughs> whatever. Right? Yeah. I, I liked it when one of the, one of the showgirls says like when the, my character loses their virginity and she says, I can't believe I lost my virginity today. And her friend, the showgirl says, you'll never miss it. And, and, it's, <laughs> and she says, you, you know, yeah. she was right. Like, yeah. I've never missed it. I've never wanted it back, you know? And I think there's a novel I was reading recently. I can, I'm sorry, I can't remember where it was because I'm always reading six things at the same time that just said, sometimes the loss of innocence is such a relief um, right. because sometimes you're simply better off without it, you know, because innocence is very dangerous in a way. And I'm very glad that you used the word predator because one of the things I wanted to do with this book was to write a story about young women who are more predator than they are prey. And that kind of girl has always existed, by the way. Um, 100%. We, yeah. A hundred percent. And she's yeah. that kind of girl moved to New York City in 1930, and she moved to New York City in 1960, and she moved to New York City in 1980, and she moved to New York City yesterday. And it's the girl who's taken a calculus of the world, seen what she looks like, and figured out how to use it as currency, essentially. And that's who Vivian falls in with. And it's also just about learning the limits of what you can do with that because she has a very good old time with it until she realizes that you can actually harm people with that. And the book is less about her getting harmed than it is about her realizing that she can cause harm. And that's the maturing lesson for her as well. Right. So yeah, it's like, it's a slightly different book about sexuality than what I think is the typical. <laughs> and when we talk, I was watching your uh, interview with uh, Marie Forleo and you both had caught into a discussion around, you know, the Me Too movement and consent and how that contrasts with sexual desire. I would love if you can uh, just for a moment describe or explain to the listener, you know, what the difference is here and why that's so important. Because we live in this, you know, maybe it's a post-Me Too era, but I love that this book was written now because we have lawmakers and all things, you know, in the States were taking away women's health rights. And I think that this is such a poignant book around, you know, you can make you know, I think your tagline is you can be, you don't need to be a good girl to be a good person, right? And you can learn from your, your mistakes. So maybe you can take a moment to explain the difference in your opinion, yeah. consent and, and desire. Yeah. I ended up interestingly and accidentally writing this book right at the peak of Me Too fever. And it was a really interesting moment to be writing a book about female sexual desire. A couple things. One is that um, I didn't want to infuse my book with any of the progressive, woke values of this particular moment in history because it would have made it false historically. Mm -hmm. There were women in the 1940s who were talking the same way that progressive, woke people today are talking about female sexual justice, but they would have been a very rarefied group of small proto-feminist academics. These were uneducated showgirls. They would not have been able to have that language and, or, or that understanding. And so I just yeah. had to be very careful to keep the modern tone out of the book and let them be who they would have actually been. The second thing I want to say is that I'm a, a huge supporter of the Me Too movement. It's a long overdue expression of female rage. And what I'm about to say is not a contrast to the Me Too movement. It's just me wanting to add a caution that we not forget that the beginning and the end of the conversation about female sexuality doesn't begin and end with merely consent. Consent is, of course, the most important piece of it, but there's also such a thing as female desire. And, um, and if we focus only entirely on the question of consent, there could be a misunderstanding about female sexuality, which says that the women are, are passive creatures waiting for a man to come and ask for something that they either decide to give to him or not. And mm -hmm. that is not my experience with my own female sexuality. It's not the experience of a lot of people that I know. Female sexual desire is a dark, and I don't mean sinful, I mean primal. primal. Um, That's a deep great word. primal. Mm -hmm. um, it is yeah. a deep, biological, complex, messy, ungovernable force. And women themselves often don't know how to control or handle their own sexual desire. I certainly have been in situations where I don't know what to do with it. Um, the world has never really known what to do with it. 
the world has always tried to legislate it, um, right. control it, right. suffocate it because it makes everybody uncomfortable. I think it even makes a lot of women uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet efforts at governing it are futile because it is a massively powerful force that often governs us. And so I wanted to discuss that about the moments in a woman's life where she looks across a room, sees something that she wants and goes and on the hunt for it, you know, um, in a very deliberate way. And, and also to show how women can, can misuse their sexual power and behave very poorly around it. And I don't want that to be lost in the conversation either. We're not talking about equality. <laughs> you know, real equality is, is also taking accountability for the shitty stuff that women can do around sex and around desire. And, and I know that firsthand from having done those things. Right. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to keep, it, keep the conversation, make sure that it stays open in that as well. Well, I love it because it's a way or it's a medium for people to become more comfortable with the idea that females, that there is a primal female sexual desire that we all have. It's a matter of tapping into it. Uh, I wrote an article maybe last year. uh, The title of it was Why Women Need Twice As Much Sex As Men. And in that article, I was, I mean, I was geeking out on like serotonin pathways and like things in the brain. Mm -hmm. I often will say, you know, you give the woman, a woman, a right, the right environment and she will chase sex like the animal that she is because her neurobiology requires it. Now, of course, you've, you've Mm -hmm. done this essentially in this book where you are developing these characters and you are demonstrating that females can like and enjoy sex. It's not just the, oh, I'm too tired, honey. I prefer chocolate over over the guy or over the sexual mm-hmm. endeavor. So I just love what you've done uh, with that as, as a whole. It's, it's just magnificent. Thank um, you. <laughs> you're welcome. One of, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about, because I wasn't sure if this was uh, an intentional through line, was this idea of community or chosen family. So, you know, we were talking in the pre-chat, Giovanni was here and, you know, community is a really big core value for Giovanni and I. I. We run Archangel and we are always making sure that people come together. And it's not necessarily, it's your bloodline. You know, it's not the people that you're born into that become your family. It's the misfits and the, and the renegades and the, you know, the cast-offs that often can, you know, come along with you on your journey. Was that an intentional part of uh, when you were writing it is to think about this idea of community and how it can be so important for development, self-development, mental health, and, uh, you know, just what a a real journey might look like for someone. Yeah. Um, the most important relationship. Okay. The most important relationship in my life is my relationship to myself. (laughs) And when I forget that I, um, pay a severe price for forgetting that. Um, so let's start that. The second most important relationships in my life have been my friendships. And I recently turned 50 and I had a birthday party with the 20 or 30 people who, you know, around the New York area who, who are my closest and dearest friends. I was looking around the room and what I said to them was, look, I'm never going to have a 40 year marriage. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's, you know, it's too late. Like, I mean, unless I met somebody tomorrow and got married and we both live till 90. Right. I'm never going to have a 40 year marriage, but I'm looking around the room and I see some 40 year friendships that I've had that I will have until I'm 90, That's 40 cool. year friendships, 30 yes. year friendships, 20 year friendships. Mm. And, and the intimacy, the, 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 the great shared concern and care and tenderness that we have for one another is so reassuring to me as the, as other parts of my life may at sometimes be chaotic and overturned. Those faces in that room were the people who were there through all of it. You know, so lovers come and go. In my case, husbands come and go. Mm-hmm. You know, like people, you know, but these people are my are my foundation. And I love my family and I'm very tender with my family, but I don't have that relationship with my family. And I think we live in a culture that it's constantly, like most cultures will tell you, family is sacred and, and it's the most important thing. And these are the people who will always take you in. If you're very lucky, you may actually have family relationships that are as good as the friendships that I've got. I know a couple people who have that kind of relationship with certain family members, where they have sisters who are sisters or brothers or parents who are as close to them as, as my friends are to me. But my God, I don't know what I would do without my community. And, and, it's, and it's a beautiful curated family. And I mean, I'm call, I'm talking to you from a beach house that I've rented for the month as a birthday present for myself for my 50th birthday that has just been a revolving door of these friends who I just want to spend as much time with as I possibly can because we uplift each other, support each other, understand each other and chose each other. 
I love that. And I think it's so comforting as well to think that, you know, if you grew up in a family that, you know, maybe wasn't the utopian, you know, situation that you were hoping for, that you can, you can adopt family members as you go along, as you were saying, these 20 or 30 people that are just your people, you know, they're not related to you by blood, but that doesn't matter at the end of the day. It matters who has your back and who loves you and who knows you, you know, it not in spite of your darkness or or your, you know, dark bits as you talked about it, but because of them. Right. Inclusive of them. Yeah. A, a, A dear old friend of mine said the other day, I would say that you're like family to me, Liz, but for me, what that would mean is um, if I said you were like family, it would mean I see you once a year and the rest of the year I talk about how weird you are. But <laughs> that's, he's like, that's my relationship with my actual family. You're better than that. You're like my best friend, you know? Oh, that's awesome. That's amazing. That's exactly how I want to be known. Not as family, but at, just as, as you friends. described there, not just at Thanksgiving where everything is, gets awkward. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that you um, just piggybacking on that, idea you mentioned before around your most important relationship is yourself. That was something else I thought you described beautifully in the book. It was sort of an undercurrent of, you know, this, this woman, Vivian, she was labeled, she had all these, you know, things that she was called. And then over the course of time, she had this ability to have the self-acceptance and to know herself, all the light, all the dark, and to be open to whatever possibility presented itself to her, you know, so she, you know, had this crazy journey and and she was still uh, able to know and love herself, which I thought was really clever. And I don't know if this was intentional or not, because I thought that there was a lot of parallels between Vivian's journey and potentially yours. You know, you, in, in your personal life, you know, you've been very public and gracious about, you know, some of the challenges that you've had, but you have given yourself permission to be in alignment with your soul and to reject the narrow kind of mold that we think about as what me- what it means to be a woman. So I wanted to ask you if you wanted to go there, what what does it mean to you and maybe some of the choices you've made in terms of how you've given yourself permission to be in alignment with yourself and also to mm-hmm. um and what you think it means to be a woman. Two part. Well, yeah, I mean I'll th- <laughs> I, I'll say that the word that I choose because it makes me feel safe and loved and able to take care of myself is stewardship. And what's the difference between me at 50 and me at 25? And it takes a minute to figure out how to do it. And to even figure out that that's the invitation is that I have accepted fully stewardship over this being who I am. And for reasons that I will never know, and you will never know, and any of us will ever know, you know, we're all born into this, into this insane experience of life on earth. It's such a weird such a weird event to be a human, to be, you know, an ape in, in, with consciousness on a tiny spinning piece of debris in vast emptiness. <laughs> what is this literally happening? Like, it's so bizarre. And the way that I choose to see it, because this is the way that I end up taking the best care of this being, is to say, for some reason, mystery, randomness, higher power, call it whatever you want, source, handed me care of this one and said, we're going to give you this one to take care of. This body, this mind, these talents, these mental illnesses, these compulsions, these obstacles, these illnesses, this family, this culture, we're going to drop you into that one in this body. And we are giving you this one. I choose to think that they gave me this one because they thought that I could take care of it. And I see it as a really sacred invitation and I elect to agree to that. And what that means is that I stay in really close communication with myself. And the best and simplest way that I do that is my most important daily practice, which is that every single day I write a letter to and from myself and love itself, capital L-O-V, love. And it always begins the same way. And I do this every single morning. I did it this morning. I'll do it tomorrow morning. I did it 10 years ago. I'll do, I'll do it till God leaves Chicago. It's, um, and I just say, <laughs> I need you because I do. I need it every single day. Right. Um, I start by saying, I need you. And then love says, through my hand, writing through my hand, I'm right here. And then I say whatever I'm feeling. I'm, I'm lonely today. I'm, I'm frightened. I feel overwhelmed. I'm, I'm ashamed. I'm full of desire. I'm scared. I'm tired. And love says, I can see that. I see that in you. And I say, you know, what should I do? And love usually doesn't give me advice, but it usually just says, um, well, whatever it is you choose to do, I'll be with you. 
and it's a the, the letter is just a repetition of that year after year after year of love just saying um i'm right here i can see that this is a difficult moment for you mm-hmm. uh, what what might make it easier for you what would what would be a good thing for you to do today to help steward yourself through this day and then i take care of that and it's um it's a very loving relationship it's very tender and an example that i can give of of not conforming to what a woman is supposed to be i won't name names but a relationship that i left once i left because I was trying very hard as an advocate for myself, as a steward of myself, to explain to this person how I needed to be loved, right? Um, and to really break it down in a very simple way. Like when I get like this, you know, when this being in front of you who you see becomes agitated, vulnerable, and insecure, what I found over many years of practice really works is if you would make eye contact with it, <laughs> put your arms around it say really reassuring words that seems to help um so Mm -hmm. could you do that that would be really great and this person wasn't able to do that and um it was somebody who i loved a great deal but just didn't have the capacity for that and i i just remember hearing a little voice inside me say to me the steward of it can you please get me out of here this is not a good situation for me to be in and i said silently to it i will get you right out of here I will get us both out of here. It's going to take a minute because we're in deep. <laughs> we live together with this person. We've built a life, but I'm, I'm going to get you out of here. And the very next conversation that I had, and this is how quick it's gotten now, the very next conversation I will have when that voice says, wait a minute, this is, this is not a good environment for me, will be whatever I have to do to get out of it. So the idea of being faithful, loyal, or lasting to somebody else is something that I will no longer promise to anybody. Because if that voice arises and says, this is no longer a nourishing environment for me, I'm bound by my contract of love to myself to get the hell out of there. Um, To be very honest, to be very clear about it, but to just say, I'm not staying for a minute in a situation that's not good for, if this being isn't thriving, and it's so quick now, I I go from thriving to not thriving so fast. And I know when I'm not thriving because suddenly I'm not sleeping well. I'm not eating. I'm anxious. I'm insecure. I feel I feel lost. I feel like there's no ground under my feet. I'm not, my health is poor. I'm in a doctor's office asking for Xanax prescription again. Right. When that starts happening, right. then it's time for me to ask myself what it needs. And what it usually needs is to go back to the things that are nourishing for it. Good mm-hmm. relationships, calm places, simple pleasures. Okay, I'm going to get you back and I'm going to get I'm getting you out of this and back into that. And I really feel like the massive difference and, and where a woman really comes into being is when she can look at herself in the mirror and say to herself, I am an able and competent navigator of this mind, of this being and this self, and you are in good hands. I've got you. I've got you. And that's what I didn't have when I was 25. But who does? Very few people have that at a young age. Right. It takes yeah. a while to figure it out. And my 50-year-old self says to my younger self, I'm sorry, I didn't know how to take care of you before, but I hadn't met you yet. It takes a really long time to, to meet yourself. I haven't yourself. met you yet. Wow. It but takes a long time to yet. build trust, to get to know yourself and, mm. and, um, and, to, and to accept responsibility. And instead of cursing, for instance, instead of cursing my, for instance, my extreme anxiety, that I'm hardwired to do. Instead of saying it's so unfair that I have this, I want somebody to take it away. I say to myself, this is the card we were dealt. I've learned some things over the years about how to manage that. And I've got you. I'm going to make sure that you are not in situations that trigger this. I'm going to take care of you. It's not anybody else's job. It's my job. And I accept it not as a martyr, but um, with great honor. And sometimes the anxiety is a blessing because I think what you've talked about is this mastery that you've been able to check in with yourself and say, okay, I'm in the, I'm in the doctor's office. I'm asking for the prescriptions. I can't sleep. I'm stress eating. Those are all signals. And they don't mean that there's something, there's not something wrong with you. It's just your body is trying to tell you we're out of alignment. And I can tell you from my own personal experience, this, I found that my body- This isn't working for me. Yeah, yeah. this isn't working. And your body is so- attuned to those things far more sometimes than your brain because your brain has the algorithms and the logic and the, well, this is, he's a good person or, you know, if it's a relationship, like you justify why maybe you should stay versus why, but you're not sometimes, honey, always, always. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Always. Only always is your body more attuned than your mind. (laughs) Only, only always. always. Yes. (laughs) Quarter. It's a quarter to always at always o'clock. Yes. I got it. (laughs) (laughs) And as your for your definition, your question about what it means to be a woman. Yeah. 
even more important that you be attuned to that because we're incredibly intuitive and we're incredibly sensitive. Mm-hmm. And when a woman is out of alignment, she gets sick instantly. And, and so instead of now instantly going to the doctor or to a lover and saying, fix this, I now say, what do you need, sweetheart? The most powerful words in the English language that a woman can say are, this is not working for me. Yeah. And it's so beautiful because it's not accusatory. It's not victimy. It's not blaming. It's not shunting responsibility. It's just a fact. Yeah. Look at me. Look at me. I'm a mess. This, this scenario, this environment, not working for me. And then the promise, the commitment, the stewardship to say to yourself, I'm going to get you out of here. And, and it's not something that you do once. I'm the person who wrote Eat, Pray, Love. It's all about that. It's not like at the end of Eat, Pray, Love, I was done. Right. You know, um, I had to do it again. I had to do it again 12 years later and say, um, I, I have to leave. This isn't working for me. I have to do this something else now. And I now know that I will do that as many times as I have to, to take care of this being. And, and now what I know that's different is that I don't make promises to anybody anymore other than to say that. My dear friend, the teacher, Byron Katie, uh, wouldn't marry her husband, Stephen Mitchell, until he allowed that their wedding vows were, I promise to love you until I don't. She said it was the only honest thing that she could not in, in her integrity say anything other than that because she was old enough to know that that's the only promise you can make to somebody. I promise to love you until I don't. And when I don't, I'll let you know. And I expect that you would do the same for me. And those are just healthy boundaries. You know, instead of, and w- one of the things I talk about uh, with Giovanni and other friends is the idea of being selfish versus selfless. And being selfless and con- consistently giving to other people is the quickest way to burn out, you know, resentment and falling apart. Where is, if you're being selfish and not in the the derogatory tone in which self, the word selfish is often portrayed, but being selfish is, you know, this is like you said, this is just not working for me. That my this being, this energetic, the resonance, the, you know, the vibration that I have is not matching up with yours or this situation for whatever reason. And being, I love, you know, the more women that I talk to who are, you know, in their thirties, their forties, their fifties, their sixties, as they are. And I had a a patient who I just love, her name is Sharon. And we, uh, we still talk uh, to this day. And she talks about how she came into knowing what she wanted and having the courage to just say it, to say, this is not, rather than what society will tell you to just sort of smile like the Stepford wife and be like, yeah, it's great. Yeah, I can over it. Like I'm going to over stretch myself and this is going to be miserable. So yeah, the, the courage with, and I think the growth that it takes for somebody to be able to stand in their power and say, yeah, this isn't working for me with, without any emotional attachment to it, I think is. is just- it's just, you just become a reporter. You know, you're just yeah. reporting a fact. Yeah. Yes. You know, it's a fact. Look at the evidence. My hands haven't stopped shaking. I've been crying every day for three months. I'm not eating or I'm overeating or I'm assault eating Mm -hmm. or I'm using alcohol because I can't be in this environment unless I'm numbed. You know, when you say this isn't working for me, all you're doing is, is reporting simple facts. And then how do you guide yourself? And, and I think a lot of times the reason people stay in situations where it's not working is they don't know what the next thing is. And that's why I think the two, the, the, other, the next two most important words are not this. So it's like, well, what are you going to do now? I don't know, but not this, right. not this. You have to start with not this. And you might not know. It's okay to say not this before you know what the next thing is. Mm-hmm. Um, your body, your mind will hear you say that. And your neural pathways will be very happy to just hear you say not this. And then slowly you'll, you'll inch your way toward what's better. It reminds me, uh, you had a Facebook post that you you posted one of your journals uh, when you were talking about, I think it was 13 or 14 days after Rhea had passed, you know, you were channeling love and you were talking about city of girls, it's going to be easy. Do you agree? You know, and I, uh, and you had said, yes, I agree. Um, I think in order to move forward and, you know, in, in losing somebody like Rhea, who I think, you know, was your person from what I understand, she was your one the incredible amount of creativity and ingenuity and imagination that you had in writing this book. I, I bring this up because I wanted to maybe go a little deeper in, in terms of discussing what your grieving process was like. So if you say, you know, not this, not this marriage, not this situation, not this career, whatever, what it, what it is, it's not this. What is your grieving process for moving through that situation? And then beyond because I look at you and say I don't know how I would have gotten over that it would have been soul crushing body crushing mind everything I would have been devastated 
but then you wrote this incredible book. So maybe we can talk about what your grieving process looked like. Was there any intention behind it? Any conscious intention that you were putting every day in the, in the days after her passing? So many places that I could begin with this, but a couple things. I, I want to be, always want to be as honest and candid as I possibly can be about this because it's so complex and people suffer and struggle so much around death and dying and around grieving. And for some reason, I'm compelled to begin answering this question by addressing the fact that there can be a tremendous relief that you feel when somebody who you've been taking care of, who's been in a lingering, devastating, debilitating death experience finally dies. Mm -hmm. And I think part, to be very honest, I just, I just want to own that because I think people feel very ashamed of that. Mm -hmm. um, they feel very ashamed also of sometimes wishing that somebody would die. And, and I want to normalize that as much as possible because it's so brutal. What Rhea was the, with, without slightest doubt, the love of my life, the most important person I've ever known, the most irreplaceable person, the foundational person of my life. And that includes, it's beyond the people who raised me. That's beyond, she was, she was my, she was my irreplaceable person. She, I would have said, if you had asked me before she got sick, who is the one person in the world you cannot live without? It was her. And I still have to deal with the, the trauma of living in this world without the one person in the world that I sometimes feel I can't live without. And her death was absolutely awful. Um, she had pancreatic and liver cancer, which was awful enough, but she also was a recovered heroin addict who, when she went onto the opioids that were necessary for the pain management of her cancer, got triggered again on all of her old addictive behaviors. And so layered on top of her already horrible dying was losing the person I loved to addiction, which was not something that I was expecting. And there was the worst six months. I, I mean, the biggest nightmare that I've ever experienced. How do you, how do you deal with an addict who's dying? You can't, like what possible incentive would that person have to quit doing as many drugs and, right. and they're in pain? And, you know, how in the world do you, uh, you know, it's just this, this, this absolute emotional disaster. She ended up shockingly, and it's a long and complicated story, but she ended up getting clean two months or a month before she died and died as herself, which was extraordinary. But before that, it was a total nightmare. By the time she died, I was so shredded and destroyed at every level mm -hmm. that all I could feel was relief. Mm -hmm. um, and I think and believe that anybody who's out there who's currently caring for somebody, and she wasn't an easy patient either. Not everybody is a lovely, gentle, easy patient. She's very, she was a very tough and willful person. So right. we didn't have a pretty hallmark death. <laughs> um, right. You know, she was a badass, fierce person. She had a badass, fierce death, and she took not just me, but a couple other people who had shown up to take care of her. She practically took her, us down with her. Right. So There's I think relief. that part of the yeah. buoyancy that you feel when you're reading City of Girls is the buoyancy of somebody who's just been released from this brutal experience. And part of the joy that I felt in writing the book was being able to become myself again, remembering that I'm not just an exhausted caregiver. I'm also a novelist. And I don't just want to tell stories about bodies that are broken and destroyed by death, pain, and addiction. I also want to tell stories about pleasure and sensuality. And so there was a, there was something that was coming back to life in me through the writing of that book. So I want to start with that. That said, grieving isn't something that you can dodge. So the, the heavier grieving that I experienced with Ray was actually after I'd finished writing City of Girls. Then that's when I fell apart more and, and it's ongoing, but I'm not afraid of it. I'm, I'm, it's so funny. There's some, there's certain human experiences that I'm very scared of. Grieving isn't one of them. I'm very comfortable with sadness. And so when I get waves of deep, painful sorrow and grief, I just let them rock me without resistance. There are other emotions that are much, much more difficult for me than this anger, 
for instance, is one that I don't know what to do with. Mm-hmm. Um, and the anger associated with food for eating Abrea has been much more painful for me than the than the more beautiful, gentle, poignant um, loss of her. But you know, grief is a bill that you have to pay eventually. It's a bill that you pay for loving as much as as I loved her. Which is and different from depression, I think, as well, isn't it? Like totally, grief and depression I mean, grief, are not the same thing. Totally not. I mean, in the same way that desire, as we were talking about earlier, is dark and primal mm-hmm. and has a vibrant, electrifying energy. Grief is a very living, powerful. It's it's. Yeah. Depression is a shutting down and a, ref- and a refusal and an inability to feel. Mm-hmm. Actually, one of the ways, one of the things that you can use to pierce depression is grief. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, oftentimes, depression is the refusal to grieve. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can use the pain and the poignancy and the sorrow of grief as a higher energy field that can pierce the numbness and the apathy of depression. Um, a lot of depression is just unfelt, un unprocessed grief. Um, so I didn't go into a depression when Maya died and I haven't, but I went into extreme waves of all sorts of emotions, anger, relief. There was a kind of ecstasy that I felt in having done a job, the hardest job I will ever do, mm-hmm. which was assisting her in her dying, mm-hmm. and knowing that I did it really well and that very few other people could have done it, knowing that I loved her too, that she died knowing that she was absolutely loved. And and then the, the, the inevitable sorrow of, of knowing that that dynamic, foundational, extraordinary person who always made me feel like the world was the most fascinating place in the world, uh, <laughs> that the world was the most fascinating place in the world, um, that she will never again walk in the door and that I'll never have her counsel again. Mm-hmm. Um, it's extremely painful. Um, but I wouldn't have missed a minute of it. I can absolutely tell you that. And even when the horror of it was happening and the nightmare of it was happening, I had a sense of knowing that I was in the right place, doing the right thing at the right time with the right person. And that's rare to know that. And I think, I mean, I, I didn't know Rhea, but I would think that her desire for you after her passing would not be to shut down and only be consumed with your, you know, grief and loss over her. And, you know, very similarly to the book, like you have been able to, after a crushing loss, like losing somebody that important to you, you know, you can still bounce back and have a wonderful life. You can find love as you have, you can, there can be, there can be potential, you know, on the other side of that, if you choose to continue to live, (laughs) you know, if you choose not to be consumed by it. And of course, I'm not saying that you should just like jump up and next, you know, I, I love that you've taken your time and there's been waves of, you know, intense feelings that you've just allowed yourself to surrender to, but you're still here, you know, and I think that you would want and anybody, anybody who's lost something, someone important to them, I think they would want you to continue living. They would want you to find love. They would want I'm you laughing to- because I do know Rhea and I also know she kind of wanted me to die a little. <laughs> I love that you give her that kind of like, she kind of wanted me to like, <laughs> she's like, Bitch, she, you're coming she would like, <laughs> she would be, she would like me to, she would like to see that we were in a lot of pain about her death. You know, like whenever people say like, yeah, you know, your loved one would want you to be happy. I'm like, no, I think Ray would want me to be little miserable enough to prove how much I loved her. Like, um, she wouldn't, um, one of the things that she was so afraid of, um, she wasn't much afraid of death, but one of the, the, actually I think the only thing she was afraid of was missing out because she was so full of life and so full of vibrance. And I remember mm-hmm. one absolutely devastating moment where, where a couple of friends had come over to see her and she, she would always rally to be with people because she was trying to suck every bit of life that she could out of her life. And, um, and she had, she was sick. She was always sick. She was dying. And at one point she said, I have to go to my bed and I have to lay down, but I don't want you guys to leave. I want you to, I don't want you to shut down the party just because I'm going to bed. Stay mm-hmm. here, stay in the house, continue the dinner. I just have to go lay down. And, um, and I insist that you keep having fun. And um, I went to check on her a half an hour later and she was sobbing into just sobbing. And, and she said, I'm just laying here in bed, listening to you guys out there laughing and talking and having fun. And knowing that in a month or two, I'm never going to be part of that again. And you're Mm -hmm. going to continue to laugh and have fun. And people will come into this house and somebody else will be in this bed with you eventually. 
as your lover and you'll have joyful times and it's killing me. And I, and I was so devastated for her and that, mm-hmm. and I was so glad that she shared that and that she didn't yeah. do the martyrdom thing of saying, I just want you to be happy. She was like, fuck you for getting to live when I get to have to die. Right. And I hate that the party will continue without me. And so there's a certain amount when I'm in these waves of deep, I was just, I just came to a beach that she loved that we used to go to. And I, you know, I went and I went and put her ashes in the water finally this year and I did it by myself. And, and, you know, it was a misty night and there was nobody out on the beach. And I wrote her name in the sand and filled her name with her ashes and let the waves take it away and just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And there was a part of me that was like, oh, Ray, you love this. (laughs) This is actually also what you want. Yes, you want me to move on, but you also want me to kind of, you kind of want to make sure that it's clear that I, can't bear the world without you and and i think that that's also how we honor the people that we love when we die and not by of course i'm moving on but of course i'm i'm also shouting out to the universe to her i hate it that you're dead yeah. and i feel like somewhere her spirit wants that too so mm-hmm. there's a um you know part of the grieving and i think i think that um pre-colonial cultures get this that that part of the sort of extravagance of grieving mm-hmm. is how you show the dead person we hate it that you're gone. We can't bear it. We're going to rip our clothes out. We're going to rip our hair off. We're going right. to howl and scream. And then eventually we'll move on. Um, but you have to do that big dramatic greeting for them as well as for you so that they can know that they that they are irreplaceable. Um, and, and that's exactly what she is and always will be. I love that. And it's so, it's so honest and vulnerable. And I can, I can tell you, uh, I am similar to Rhea and that I want people to be wailing at my, <laughs> Shit, my yeah. if they're not wailing, you did something wrong in your life. You know, like <laughs> you don't want them to just go to Kentucky fried chicken an hour later. And yeah, be all right. Like, yeah. you know, you, and you yeah. want, you want them to be okay, but like, yeah, it's, it has to be felt. I mean, um, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a hole in the world there's a ray hole and part of my way of honoring how much I loved her is to just stand in the naked unvarnished truth of the fact that nothing and nobody can fill that hole and is and, and one of the most comforting things anybody ever did for me was a friend of mine who I fell apart with um shortly after Ray was diagnosed and I just I just fell into this wailing keening meltdown and I said don't you dare and she's very spiritual and I said there's two things I have to say. And if you contradict me on this, I will fucking kill you. <laughs> One of them is I will never love anybody as much as I love Drea. And don't you dare tell me that there's somebody who's going to step in and replace that because it's not true. And you know, it's true. And I know it's true. And she said, I know that's true. And instantly I felt the relief of the truth being spoken. And they mm-hmm. said, and the second thing is, don't you dare tell me that she will always be with me in spirit because she won't be here. Like she won't be here. I will never get to kiss her again. I will never get to talk to her again. I will never get her advice again. She'll be gone. And my friend said, that is also true. She will be gone. And that is what death means. And and I was so grateful not to have somebody blow fairy dust and say like, oh, it doesn't matter. It's the same. It is not the same. Having somebody dead is not the same as having them alive. And there is a level at which she's always with me. She's embroidered into my DNA. I've become this creature who's kind of half Rhea at this point. She belongs inside of me and she's gone. Um, and both of those things have to be admitted for, in order to experience, I think, both real grief and real moving on. I just want to thank you uh, for that. And I think your courage and vulnerability to speak the absolute truth around what it's like to lose someone. It, it sounds like I, I've never had to experience this. So I am sitting here as an empath listening to what it must be like and your vulnerability and your courageousness in sharing some of those darker thoughts as well around the buoyancy and the relief that uh, you felt after her passing and the waves that you feel even to this day, I think it gives other people permission and it starts the conversation for them to also be talking about this because I think you're right. I think there's a lot of shame and I think there's a lot of, you know, we think we need to act a certain way when somebody dies and we just, we just sort of have to shuffle on and get on with it. So I just want to thank you for that and for this entire conversation, your honesty and your, 
you know, your spoken word is is just as beautiful as your as your written word. And I wanted to thank you for the time that you spent with us today. Thank you so much. I, if I've done nothing else with my life, I just want to be a walking permission slip to make other people feel a little less crazed and weird about their own lives. <laughs> and, um, so thank you for <laughs> thank you for giving me um, the opportunity to to do that again because that makes me feel safe and healthy and um, connected. So thank you, thank you for what you do, and it's been absolutely beautiful talking to you. Wonderful. I'm looking forward to seeing you. Uh, I know you're gracing our stage in October and this uh, podcast will be coming out about a couple weeks before then, but uh, really looking forward to see you, uh, seeing you in person and thank you for your time today. I'll see you there. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find all this information at our website, bettershow.co. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-S-H-O-W dot C-O. Maybe the simplest way to keep in touch with me is to sign up for my email. When you go to bettershow.co, there'll be a little pop-up and I send a weekly email on all things mindset, nutrition, fitness, Uh, longevity, aging, things that are capturing my attention that week in a newsletter that we call Brain Candy. You can find me on social, on Twitter, it's Dr. underscore Stephanie. On Instagram, I am Dr. Stephanie Estima. That's S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E-E-S-T-I-M-A. And finally, a legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and the advice, discussions, and recommendations that we discuss on this podcast do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare professional's advice or care. There is no doctor-patient relationship that has been established in the consumption of this podcast, and the use and implementation of the information contained here are at the sole discretion of the listener. The content in this podcast is not intended to be used as a substitute for any professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment.